Welcome back to Untold Civil War. I hope you've been enjoying our audio as well as our video content over on YouTube. Quick shout out to our sponsor, The Badge Maker. Remembrance Day is around the corner. Civil War reenactors Christmas, if you will. And if you are marching in that splendid parade, you better be wearing a core badge. Look no further than The Badge Maker for the best American-made products to take your impression up a notch and to stand out amongst the rest during that great spectacle. And now, sit back, take a sip of that cup of joe, and let's delve into some untold Civil War. Welcome to the Untold Civil War. I sit with Brett Schweinfurth, expert of the Union Army's Invalid Corps. He's also known for his fantastic collection and regards. Thank you so much for coming on the show to discuss this unique outfit of the Civil War. Well, thank you. Thanks for uh, thinking about and considering us. Well, the main thing I'd like to dig into first is I could sort of relate to you while we were talking a little bit earlier uh, in regards to how you got into the Civil War. I have a fascination for the unique units of the Civil War. It wasn't just really blue and gray, right? There was a whole bunch of different uniforms, cultures, traditions. Every unit was different. How did you get into the Civil War, or like I like to say it, when did the Civil War bug bit you? Uh, well, when it bit me, it was different than when I started. When I started, I was seven years old, and my dad took me to his reenacting events and put me in a VMI uniform, and in between battles, he said, that gentleman over there is going to give you orders. You listen and obey, and uh, that was it, and then as I grew, I grew into the hobby, and uh, at the age of 16, I was offered a unit um dismounted cavalry and i wasn't sure that that's anything i even remotely wanted to do we gave it a try and i loved it and i loved taking charge of the unit you know i, I kind of felt like i made myself known for who i was and what i was doing it was one of those where if they had an invitational and i showed up people didn't want to be on the same side of the field as me so that was a good feeling but yeah it was that and then right around that time i just started pursuing original pieces pieces from the war and you know, the simple stuff, bullets and, and peppy brass and just the little things that, you know, I guess if you want to feel like you're stepping it up, that's what you get. But, you know, I had no idea then I would have stuff like this now. Where in your journey through Civil War studies did you find the Invalid Corps? The Invalid Corps. And thank you for addressing it as Invalid Corps. I always address it as Invalid Corps only because to me that explains the beginning. Because when they started, that was their name. So when General Order 105 came out, they were the Invalid Corps, even though the name did change. They, they started with that, and even post-war, people still considered them Invalid Corps. So that's how I do. Thank you for that for me. It was just along the way, I believe, maybe I was 18 or 19. And uh, like I said, I found a piece that was Invalid Corps related. And I asked all my go-tos what it was. Nobody really had an answer as to who the Invalid Corps was what they did their responsibilities their tasks their journey nobody really knew and everybody kind of said well i think that there is a newspaper article or is a magazine article or you know if you look in the life of times of uh billy yank there's a paragraph on it so i started looking it up and i was going through all the references i could find everybody had a paragraph but everybody had a different paragraph and so i just started putting the paragraphs together trying to get the information but it still didn't make sense it still didn't line up who these men were it didn't say where they were, what they were doing. It just said they existed. Christmas is around the corner, and what better gift for that history buff in your family than a piece of true Civil War history? Civil War buttons, letters, and images are all available from our sponsor, the Excelsior Brigade. To sort of get into it, for someone who might not know, what exactly was the Invalid Corps? What were the circumstances during the Civil War that led to this formation? What hole or uh, job did they fill? We figure two years into the war, Union's losing pretty bad, and all the hospitals are filled, churches are being turned into hospitals to hold men, and as I explain it, the Army wanted 100% of a soldier, and so you yourself being a veteran, I believe, that you would understand that they want a perfect man as a soldier, so they want 100%, so they got men sitting in hospitals that are 80% of a soldier. So either they can't march long distances or they can't carry heavy items for long distances. Maybe it's just they got to use the restroom more often than normal. Uh, they're missing fingers. They were less of a soldier. So the army didn't want them anymore. It's just something so small as that. Uh, one guy was put in because he had gallstones. Still a soldier. He's still willing to serve his country, but they didn't see it that way. 
So then they said, well, we have non-marching positions that soldiers can fill. So men that are standing guard outside our supplies, our surplus, our capitals, places of munitions, we have men that are 100% of a soldier that are doing an 80% job. You get that guy who is an 80% soldier sitting in the hospital, let's bring him out because he's not going to march, but the guy who was there can march. So let's get him to the front. So General Order 69 through the uh, military said, you'll make use of these men. If they're in a hospital, if they're wounded, if they're somehow disabled, find use for them. So they put them on invalid detachments, and it just said, these men will be away from the hospital, they'll be away from the units, from their unit, but they're still serving for the cause. That gives the opportunity for that other soldier who's perfect to rejoin his unit and get back out into the field. As it was being approached, you had to become infirm in some way while in the service. If you were already disabled pre-service, it did not count. And so there were guys, there was a certificate of exemption for drafted on account of disability. And that meant you were disabled pre-war, you were not gonna be accepted. And so as it went on, they said, well, of course, there's got to be more to this. There's got to be more ways that we can do it. How many of these, let's say less than 100% of a soldier men, do we have sitting in hospital? And of course, the number was tremendous. And they said, you could fill a unit today. So as it went on, they said, well, let's fill a unit. And so the general, like I said, General Order 105 simply states an invalid corps is authorized. The problem with that is it didn't explain what an invalid corps was. So that's just like in the Civil War, they were issuing canned rations. It took them 50 years to figure out to invent a can opener. The same thing, they, they invented an invalid corps, but didn't define the definition of invalid. And uh, so that became a problem as more units formed and more time went on. Well, I understand what you're saying here about using these guys who are still able to serve in certain capacities, thus freeing up other soldiers to go do the fighting. Uh, which makes sense because you do need more soldiers out there in the field. Absolutely. But you mentioned this earlier before we started recording. This idea of the invalid corps did not start in the Civil War. There is a previous tradition of this. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, pre-Civil War in, in the Revolutionary War, it was called the Corps of Invalids, and they always stood back. And generally, when an army was on the move, if the soldiers took the front line and they left, they always had wagons go with them. If the wagons stayed back, the invalid soldiers stayed there. So the Corps of Invalids always stayed behind. It was the numbers were much lower than than during the Civil War. But again, so battles and so were the militia. And but pre-existing before that was an idea took from Europe, which was the Royal Corps of Invalids. And so when they came over to establish the colonies and establish the states, they became the Corps of Invalids. And then they disbanded because they were no longer in war. And then two years into the American Civil War, they started the Invalid Corps. And I know you were just beginning to touch on it, but can we talk a little bit about how they started to formalize these outfits? They came up with a distinctive uniform, correct? And then what were the official requirements in the end when they started forming the individual battalions? So the uniforms were, as you'll see behind me here, this is an original uh, Arsenal jacket. And uh, so they were given a sky blue jacket with a blue 12 buttons down the front single stripe on the collar, uh, more of a chowder style jacket. The instruction said it would be cut like a cavalry style, but it was unique to its own. So they did stand out. It was General Order 124 that said the following uniform has been adopted for the Invalid Corps. Jacket of sky blue kersey with dark blue trimmings cut like the jacket for the United States Cavalry. Come down on the loins and abdomen. Trousers were regulation, forge cap was regulation. The officers, again, under General Order 158 of 63, uh, had a frock coat of sky blue cloth, dark blue trim, velvet collar cuffs, and all other respects to present pattern of the officers of the infantry. The only thing that really separated them was their jackets or their coats. Uh, as the war carried on, the officers were allowed to wear a dark blue coat. This is Captain Andrew Winter's coat behind me. It still had the velveteen on it to separate it, uh, but the men generally wore the sky blue shell jacket. Some units very late in the war were given a four button sack coat. Some people saw that as a great honor 
because the original name was the Invalid Corps of Honor, but the name was too long. So only the earliest stuff will give mention to the Invalid Corps of Honor. Later on, of course, it was just Invalid Corps. Some people saw the uniform as, as high distinction. It definitely separated them. And other people hated it because it definitely separated them. They didn't want to be seen, per se, as I'm less of a person, I'm less of a soldier, you should label me as such. And other people argued that some of the reasons the men were there was because they're missing an arm, they're missing fingers, they're missing a hand. Um, some items have become numb, then there's nerve damage. So you gave men with hand and arm problems more buttons and smaller ones. So of course there was issues with that. Uh, some, uh, some earlier coats had seven coat size buttons on it. And I'm still trying to figure out exactly where that fell into it, but there was a number of them that exist. And again, that was very early into the war, well, into the Invalid Corps, halfway through the war. But yeah, General Order 105 established the Corps. And then when people were saying, we don't know what this means. So if my guy stubs his toe and he's limping, is he an invalid? So then General Order 130 came out and it kind of gave a breakdown of what was going on. Well, then people said, I don't want to send you my men because you already took them for General Order 69 under invalid detachment. So you already had my guy. You can't have him back. He's mine. So then they released General Order 173 that said General Order 69 is revoked. It doesn't exist. And anything there into it is no longer valid. They said, okay, so you have an invalid corps. You're gaining men, but you still haven't told me what conditions and what qualifies my man to be in the invalid corps? So then they released General Order 212 that gave all the conditions of this is an invalid or this is a discharge. So it broke it down pretty well. Part of the problem with that was they still didn't know where they fit in. And so one man showed up at the at his hospital he was working at and said, I'm here to do my duty under General Order 212. And they said, you have no authority here. And he showed up as a captain going, I am a captain. They said, you can be a captain all you want, be a captain somewhere else. And so he had to write in, go to the war department saying, you've assigned us these posts, but the posts you assigned us to aren't taking it serious and they're telling me to go away. And so again, that broke into something else that it didn't need to be. In fact, this was it right here. And he's addressing General Order 212 in detail saying, this exactly explains what I am, you know, what I should be doing. And please let me do it. Please let me do the job that I've taken on. At the beginning, men had to be examined to join the Invalid Corps. Officers did not. Officers had to apply to be in. And at the beginning, no officer wanted to take that position. So they had to borrow men from other units. Uh, one officer I have here wrote, uh, I have been detached from the regiment for duty in the Invalid Corps. The Corps consists of those from whom wounds are otherwise unfit for field duty, but are fit for hospital duty. They're employed as guards, nurses, clerks, and etc. about the large hospitals in this city. The Corps is divided into six divisions, which I have command of the fourth, consists of five hospitals, 350 men. The number keeps me quite busy since I have no help except a clerk. And so again, as it started low, uh, the men, it was nothing but more of a problem at the beginning. And when they did it, they didn't really expect to have regimental standards because when in General Order 105, it openly says it'll be thought best of companies, so 100 men or more, and then later thought best of battalions. No officer could hold the command higher than major because the numbers would never be that high. So if you transferred in and you were above a major, you took a demotion. So not only did you have, as an officer, not only did you have to apply for a position, but they were immediately gonna break you down. And if you took it, you held the highest rank possible because you already earned that. Later on when they said, you know, this is really working and we're really getting the men, they opened it up and opened the rank structure and men would get their rank back. And so there were full senior officers, which was great, uh, just showing that it was working. 
So they start to see that it it is work. What exactly duties, you mentioned a little bit before, what duties were they performing? What were these successes that we saw? When they first started, it was basically the simple duties in town and in town being Washington, D.C. So they brought all the men into Washington, D.C., figuring with the War Department, with the Capitol, that's where they needed to be. So they brought the men in. These men worked as clerks, scribers, tailors, bakers, carpenters, guards, nurses, nurses assistants, anywhere that there was a small job needed, they filled it. It was even to the point where one man who could read and write went around a hospital and did letters for the, the sickly soldiers to send home just to let the family know what was going on. Um, as it grew and as they grew bigger, they said, you know, the numbers are really coming in. People are starting to really grasp the concept of this invalid corps. We need to do more. And right at that time is when they enacted the draft. And so it was the invalid corps that were sent to New York to fight the draft riots. And so one unit of invalids actually uh, met with a group of protesters and said, you will disperse, you will move. The crowd didn't take them serious. The invalids fired over their heads to show, look, we're as serious as you guys are. We need to move on. And they reloaded. The crowd didn't move, so they fired into the crowd, killing two of them. Well, of course, the crowd getting upset overran the invalids and took their weapons from them. Well, it's so, very clear that here's an outfit that they said, oh, it's not supposed to be in the field, but they're definitely getting their, their licks in, uh, whether it's the draft riots and then later on at Fort Stevens, correct? Well, it, as it was written in General Order 173, I believe, was that the invalid court was no longer eligible for field campaign, meaning they would never see front lines. It was written that they could not see front lines. And so as war broke out in their area, they were told to retreat to the rear and ideally wait till it's over. Or if we need a runner, if we need a guard over a post, if we need a guard over supplies, you can wait there. Don't think about coming to the front lines. So again, as the invalid corps grew, they formed battalions. The first battalion was men who ideally had like gallstones or trouble marching, but they could still hold a long arm, a firearm. They were given muskets. And make sure that, that is clear they were given muskets, nothing rifled. Their orders that they had was 69 caliber buck and ball. And so I have the original orders here. Uh, they were given them by the thousands and clearly there was just a lot of, I don't know if they were shooting them as test runs. I don't know if they were letting guys burn powder just to feel like they could burn powder. Uh, but as you said, in the Battle of Fort Stevens in July of 64, when Jubal Early came up through the Shenandoah Valley, broke at Monocacy and they said, we don't know if he's going to go to Baltimore or DC and he'd be a fool to go to DC. Well, of course he was going to DC. His whole intentions was not to overtake DC. His whole intentions was to get Grant to leave Lee alone, to back off of Lee. So if he made a scene at the Capitol, that's good enough for Grant to come back. So they came down and made their, themselves known, Jubal Early's Calvary, and infantry that he brought said, we're here, and we're, it was Breckenridge as well, said, we're here, and let's open fire and let them know that we're here. So the invalids saw it, and they said, hey, we're ready to fight. And Washington, D.C. said, that's great. Go away. And they said, no, 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 you don't get this. Every one of us here is a seasoned soldier. Every one of us earned this sky blue jacket because we already went to war. We have been wounded, injured, disabled in some way while in the service. We earned this because we were soldiers. And they said, but under the orders, we can't send you in. So that's when they showed up at the uh, Capitol and they said, all the clerks to the statesmen, statesmen, grab a cartridge box, grab a rifle, you're heading out to the field. And of course they're like, we, we write, we write things down. We don't shoot. We don't know how to load and fire. We don't understand the process. We don't get in firing lines. And they said, you're all we have right now. So was that some hundred days men, a few veterans were around because DC had pretty much been emptied at that point. And again, the invalid said, we're ready. Please send us in. And they said, no, we, we, we cannot. Under the orders, we cannot. So again, Early's men came in and these were guys who were trained with sharpshooter type rifles, were picking off the cannoneers at Fort Stevens. 
uh, as we, we should all know, uh, Abraham Lincoln showed up to watch the battle and the man standing next to him was shot. And it was just, they were told to fire and uh, Early's men were told to shoot into and, and take down as many heavy artillery men as you could because that would stop the cannons. So then they took the cannons and turned them onto the houses outside figuring that's where all these soldiers were. So if you were a resident in the DC area between Washington DC and Early, your house was fired upon and burnt to the ground. So again, they said, we need men, send in the invalids. So the invalids took their spots, they took their posts, they formed picket lines, they formed solid lines, they stood their ground and saying, we have nowhere to go, we're gonna stay here. If Early wants into the Capitol, they're going through the Invalid Corps. And so they stood their ground. Again, it wasn't so much an imminent threat because Early never advanced. Once the, the trenches were filled, once the lines were filled, Early said, I've made a big enough of a scene. I don't need to push any harder. Clearly, they know I'm here. And so the Invalids, again, stayed. They stuck around. And when night fell, Early fell back. The Invalids stayed on the battlefield. And so when daybreak opened up, the Invalid Corps was still there, still in their lines, still ready to defend the Capitol should the need be, but there was no need anymore. Early was gone. Hot off the press, the latest edition of Military Images magazine contains articles such as How to Live Your Best Life, a Civil War Veteran's Advice to the Future, Hard Cases, Distinguished European Soldiers Who Did Not Become U.S. Generals, and many more articles covering fascinating topics and sharing amazing, some never published before images of the Civil War. Still, uh, they didn't know that Early intended to retreat. So well, still- Who would have known at that point? No, you know, other than Early, who would have known? And that was even um, when they fell back and the lines advanced to the positions of where the Confederates were, one Confederate left a note saying, uh, be thankful I'm only here to make a scene. Next time I show up on the door of DC, I'm coming in. And so, and with the invalids, again, being issued muskets for that, uh, I have the original reports from DC leading up. So in April, they said, we have smoothbore muskets. They're in great shape, requesting more buck and ball. May, we have smoothbores. They're in great shape, requesting buck and ball. June, we have muskets. They're in great shape, requesting buck and ball. July hit, the battle happened. They said, these muskets, are inadequate. They cannot help us in any way. We are requesting Springfields. So they learned right away that if they were to be taken serious, they needed serious weapons. Well, now I think you sort of mentioned it in the beginning as we call them the Invalid Corps. But where does this uh, confusion happen with the Veteran Reserve Corps? What exactly was that? How are they connected? There, there's more confusion daily, it seems, that as we learn about it and people ask questions like you're asking me, more stuff will come up. So you figure relatively, for the first men that enlisted when the war broke out, they enlisted for three years. So as it went on, their three-year term had expired, and some of these men were no longer, in essence, worthy soldiers to be, again, a perfect soldier to take the front lines. So they were veterans. They had served their part, but they weren't disabled by being a veteran. So they took the term Invalid Corps, removed it, and put in Veteran Reserve Corps. Because although not every man is, in essence, going to be the definition of an invalid, they definitely were a veteran. So they became the Veteran Reserve. So they said three years into it, if you served your time and you want to serve again, enlistment is open. Now, that's not comparable to uh, Hancock's Veteran Volunteer Corps, which the two get confused all the time. So Hancock did the same thing where he said, I will take veterans, I will take men that have already seen the battlefield, and I will open it up and I will welcome you to come in. Well, even during the war that created confusion, because one of the sisters of a soldier said, oh, you know, congratulations for being with Hancock and doing your part and moving out. And he said, you know, sorry, sister, you made something of a mistake. It's still the Invalid Corps, it's just a new name. Gotcha, gotcha. And another part that I find fascinating about these, these soldiers is their connection with Lincoln. Uh, there's many times where the, the paths cross. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, one of the best ones I'll give, and, and it's something that I think absolutely needs to be acknowledged. If you were to understand anything about the Invalid Corps and their place, their position, how they helped, where they helped, 
where was it an asset to the war? Because it absolutely was. The best thing I can explain was, we'll say the 150th Pennsylvania Infantry, the Bucktails, when they first started off and they left Pennsylvania, in fact, I'm in the area where they live. Um, they enlisted right down the road from me. They went out and they pr were proud of themselves because they became Abraham Lincoln's guards. So they were known as Lincoln's guards. Well, again, first day of Gettysburg, July 1863, the Bucktails, 150th, were at first day's fight at McPherson Farm. Now, how can you be Lincoln's guards if Lincoln was not at Gettysburg? The simple answer was, as I stated earlier, these were perfect soldiers doing somewhat of a minor job. They were guarding the president, but they weren't doing long marches. They weren't in battle-ready positions. They were just there. So when the Invalid Corps started, they took the 150th Pennsylvania Bucktails, moved them out into the field as they should have, and the Invalid Corps took the position of Lincoln's guards. So Lincoln wrote in his diary how he absolutely adored sitting on the White House lawn and looking out over the field where the Invalid Corps was stationed. So they were stationed on the White House lawn. And he said that he absolutely loved watching the men drill, go over standard routine procedures, standard march. And that's what he would do is he would just sit on the White House lawn and watch as he called his boys. And as time went on, we had the Battle of Gettysburg. And again, the Invalid Corps was, was part of the reason you had such an entourage of freed men to fight that battle was because the invalids had taken those positions where these perfect soldiers were in wait, just waiting to get into that field or waiting that where they could be used in that field. So the invalids took that position. And when Abraham Lincoln was asked to give the Gettysburg Address, the day before when he was writing one of his versions of the Gettysburg Address, he looked up over the invalids and said, these men are going to go with me. They will be my guards. So the invalids rode with him on his train into Gettysburg, and they took him into the Wills house, where then he was then taken over by dismounted cavalry, who took him to the site where he gave the Gettysburg address. Again, when he returned back to the house, the invalids took over, took him back to the train, and took him home to D.C. Uh, along the way, again, Abraham Lincoln came out and watched him fight at Fort Stevens. Abraham Lincoln liked to go to the soldiers' rest with the invalids to watch them at work and to watch the men in soldiers' rest in D.C. Uh, Abraham Lincoln... When he was assassinated, it was the invalids who shut down Ford's Theater. It was the invalids who gave the first warrants out for John Wilkes Booth and accomplices. It was the invalids who went and chase over John Wilkes Booth and accomplices. It was the invalids who were there as Abraham Lincoln died. And when he did pass, it was the invalids or the Veteran Reserve at that time who were the only ones allowed to handle the late president's remains and coffin. So 29 men started in DC and took him to Springfield. And that's when Abraham Lincoln was given his train. The day he died was the day that he was supposed to approve his train. But of course he didn't make it, he had passed. So he only got the one ride on that train and that was his final. And he took it, his son was in the train with him, Willie, who had died earlier. There would have to be three invalids on guard at all times, even if the president's body had been removed, because it was still the president's train. So anytime that that coffin was moved to a viewing through numerous cities, numerous parades, uh, anytime it was put into a hearse or put into a spot of viewing, the invalids would be the only ones to handle it. Other men, other soldiers, other officers could stand guard over it, but they could never touch it. The only time that those, the, the entourage, the whole 29 men were not on duty was when they were in Chicago, where they had Camp Douglas, which the invalids were responsible for. And Benjamin Sweet, who was in charge of it, said, I'm sending other invalids to take charge of the situation. You men need your rest to make sure you're ready to go to Springfield. And so that was the only time that they fell back. And the people of Chicago opened their homes to the invalids. <clears throat> they gave them shelter. They gave them meals. They made sure that they were well fed. They made sure that they were clean and that they were prepared for the journey into Springfield. And that was the only time a weapon was drawn because these men that were guarding Abraham Lincoln's body were not issued firearms. They were only issued NCO swords. Because the war was over and they were showing that they were no longer at war. 
<clears throat> when the coffin was being returned to the train from Chicago, they drew their NCO swords and formed an arch for the coffin to march under. They loaded and then headed towards Springfield. And so when the conspirators were put on trial, the invalids were the ones that moved the conspirators. They're the ones that guarded the conspirators. Something that's generally, generally overlooked when they show the conspirators was wherever they sat in the courtroom, in, in, a member of the invalid corps stood between them. The members of the invalid corps guarded them for one hour at a time. And then when they served their hour guarding the conspirator, conspirator, they would never guard again. And this was just in case the conspirator said, look, I got someone that can give you money if you let me go. I got someone that can hook you up. Let me out of here. If you want to give me an extra meal, if you want to give me extra benefits. So they never gave anybody the opportunity. So an invalid would show up, do duty, go away. An invalid would take the conspirators, move them to the courthouse, stand between them so they couldn't talk to each other move them back to their cell. When the con four conspirators were found guilty, it was the Invalid Corps, the Veteran Reserve Corps, that hung them. Absolutely fascinating. <laughs> it's great stuff. You know, we talked about the uh, Invalid Corps as a whole. I was wondering if there are any specific profiles, specific individuals that you could mention, uh, sort of put a face and a name to some of these members. So I'm still fighting for Andrew Winter's likeness. I have a picture of him post-war. You know, it would have been smart if I had that. But I have his coat. I have his trousers. Captain Andrew Winters, when he lived in South Carolina as a surgeon, and then he had a, a iron furnace where he made tools with his friend. And when he found that South Carolina had gone Southern and wasn't Union, he didn't agree with that. He packed what he could and left and went to Kentucky. While in Kentucky, he said, I'm ready to enlist. I'm ready to sign up with any unit that'll take me. The first unit he found was the 1st Tennessee Infantry, which he signed up with. Shortly after one of the battles he was at, the battle was over, men were you know, on the field, wounded, injured. He said, I'm a surgeon. I can help these men. So he went out into the field and started nursing wounds, helping the men that were on the field. And one of the surgeons there looked at him and said, you look like you've done this before. And he said, I have 14 years of surgical experience on me. I, I can help. Overnight, he was promoted to lieutenant. And as he grew, he, be he became sickly, which got him into the veteran reserve, which he was north of Tennessee. That area, it's hard to tell where they were because the invalids there, veteran reserve, took over five states. So he was being bounced around. But when the war ended, or when he, he retired before the war ended, he settled just south of Cleveland. So there was a man who earned his position, said, although I have everything, I have this iron furnace, I'm a surgeon, I can make money, I can, in essence, still make funds to supply the union. He said, I'm just, I'm out of here. I'm going to pick up a, a, a weapon and I'm going to fight for my country. And uh, as soon as the South learned that he was gone, uh, they took over his iron furnace and started making weapons off of it. So he lost his furnace to that. John Hahn Bell he was age 29 from New York State, entered the volunteer service as a private April of 61, took active part in the battles of Bull Run, Fair Oaks, Gaines Mills, Savage Station, White Oak Swamp, Malvern Hill, Antietam, Fredericksburg, and Yorktown. He was wounded in the left shoulder by a mini ball and had a skull fracture. He entered into the VRC as a major June of 63. And again, he would have been a major because that's all they would have allowed him to have at that time. James Tracy, he was, he was with the 8th VRC, stationed at Camp Douglas. He was 29 years old, state of Illinois, entered the volunteer service as a private in May of 61, took part in the battles of Pea Ridge, Stones River, received two gunshot wounds to the body, entered the Veteran Reserve Corps September of 63. Augustus Higgs, age 24, from the state of Illinois. Entered the volunteer service in April of 62, took part in the Battle of Arkansas Post in Vicksburg, contracted chronic diarrhea and inflammation of the lungs, entered the Veteran Reserve October of 63. And I'll end with uh, one of the worst names I've heard, Robert Robert, but age 39 from the state of New Jersey, entered the volunteer service in July of 61, took part in the Battle of West Point, Yorktown, Gaines Mills, Antietam's, and the second Fredericksburg, received a gunshot wound in the face and had his left arm broken, entered the VRC in July of 63. And now it's easy to find men, officers, and get their story, because when the war had ended, the government released a book of the officers that were active at that time, and they gave their story. 
if you were done before that book was written or if you showed up after that book was written, you didn't exist. And so that's why with Captain Andrew Winters here, he became a lawyer after he left the war. And I found his information in a lawyer's book for the area. But he, he said he didn't exist. There was plenty of officers through there. They didn't acknowledge all of them, but they, they gave some of them their respects. Looking for a subscription service that will finally satiate your hunger for more history content? Use the link in the show notes to get access to History Fix, the streaming service for us history nerds. I just watched a great documentary on the Lost Battalion of World War I. There is so much available from History Fix, don't miss out. Well, you just mentioned a couple resources there that you <laughs> used to do your research. But if someone were to come up to you and say, hey, is there any reading that you could recommend so that they could do their own research? As well? The hardest part of this is there isn't. So if you look up the standard go-tos, like I said, Life and Time of Billy Yank did a paragraph on it. I believe half of it is completely incorrect. There's a few magazine articles that came out. They're completely incorrect. I don't really want to point fingers at them because of how bad the article was. But this magazine was so terrible in trying to give respects to the Invalid Corps. I wrote them a response saying, thank you for acknowledging the Invalid Corps, the Veteran Reserve. Thank you for trying to bring light to the subject. But just about every paragraph you wrote was wrong. And I wrote a reprise for them and said, please use this. And they said, they wrote me back and said, uh, your answer is too long, therefore we're not interested. So uh, even if you go into the War of the Rebellion series, Captain DeFray, Captain DeForest, I'm sorry, Captain DeForest wrote the answer for the Invalid Corps to be published for the answer of the war and in the Invalid Corps and the Veteran Reserve. The problem was Captain DeForest was only in the Veteran Reserve Corps two months before the war had ended. So here's a guy trying to explain three years of what he had nothing to do with. Now, again, he went on because the when he finished the report, it was written in October versus when the war ended in April. Um, but a lot of what he wrote, just like much of the military, was speculation. It was assumptions. It was the, and I'm sure it was the best he could get at the time because of course there wasn't self-service where he's just gonna call people up and be like, hey, tell me your experience. What did you go through? So he's writing to the best of his ability, but it contradicts itself through the writings. It gives absolutely wrong information. Um, it, it's even to the point where he says, we didn't draft disabled people because we felt that the men serving in the war, the men in the Invalid Corps, would be of a lesser degree of a disability than what we would draft, so we feel bad bringing somebody in. And then he later writes how these men were of such a poor degree of a soldier that we contemplated opening a third battalion to put them in. And it's like, you can't have it both ways. So I, I'm not trying to fault DeForest, but he being two months of a soldier during the war, he definitely didn't have all the answers versus Hannibal Norton was there from the invalids at the very beginning. And he surpassed in 1867 when they were still doing the Veteran Reserve Corps. He started with them. He helped establish them through New England. He helped establish Elmira Prisoner of War Camp. He helped establish the Invalids in Washington, D.C. He helped establish the Freedman's Bureau under the Veteran Reserve Corps. But it seems like they took no information from him because I have Hannibal Norton's paperwork and nothing matches. I'm trying to get something put out there as I get yelled at. I'm not an expert. I just have most more information than the standard person. Just because, again, when I wanted to get an answer, the answer wasn't there for me. So out of stubbornness, I tried to buy, obtain, acquire anything that was Invalid Corps, Veteran Reserve Corps related. I have over 500 items now. And so, and it's just the factor of going through document by document and saying, how does it work? Even something as simple as how did the invalid corps, how did men become invalids in the invalid corps? So if you wanted your invalid corps enlistment, how did you get this paper? And the simple answer that the majority would want to give is, okay, they were transferred. Somebody said they're in a hospital, transfer them to the invalid corps. And it was never that easy. It was, let me see if I can find them here. 
the soldier would have to show up before a medical board. And in front of that medical board would be three surgeons, three certified surgeons. They would have to write down what they feel is wrong with this soldier. So here I have one. So it's a surgeon's report that says gunshot wound received in the left scapula passing through the right, also slight enlargement of spleen. So each surgeon would fill out one of these and they would pass it to the master surgeon. The master surgeon would then have to go through and see if he agreed with it. He would then issue a surgeon certificate and this made it to Invalid Corps saying exactly what was wrong with them and where they would see best fit. Then they would be put in. The men of the Invalid Corps were not transferred per se. Once they were brought in, they would be discharged from their original unit and re-enlisted. So it wasn't a simple transfer. And because they re-enlisted, they're now in for another three years. And so certain aspects would be a discharge here stating surgeon certificate of disability, which he is not physically suitable to enter or re-enlist into the invalid corps. So nothing was guaranteed that you would be there versus second Lieutenant Jesse Kressler of the 33rd Indiana Volunteers was being discharged cause disability, but he was physically suitable for the Invalid Corps. So certain notes would come up saying how it was done. But again, no, that information in a general writ doesn't exist. So nobody knows exactly how it was. And again, like I said earlier, if you were an officer, you had to request that you wanted to be in it. And so if you wrote in, and I may have one here, this was a man writing saying, I'm ready to come back in. So he was discharged before the Invalid Corps existed and he wanted back. So he would send in his application saying, I, I left on honorable discharge. I have a medical discharge. I was meritorious and deserving was the exact term they were looking for. I was every bit of a good soldier and I want in. You would get a response for officers saying, we have received your request and you will show up, present yourself, and we will evaluate the situation. Uh, this is, an, again, another handwritten one stating that we received your application. We will consider you for the Invalid Corps if you meet the right requirements. Now, this was signed by Richard Rush of Rush's Lancers. And again, Captain DeForest said that he was the first enlisted invalid ever which to any information that we can find is not accurate. He was never in the Invalid Corps. He was only Colonel and Assistant to the Provost Marshal. But he was under the Provost Marshal. He kept his rank as Colonel because if he went into the Invalid Corps, he would have been dropped down to Major. So he kept his position. So again, DeForest writing for the Invalid Corps, again, got one wrong. And so again, I'm trying as best I can to make sense of this. Uh, piece by piece, I'm fine. Like I said, I go through documents one at a time. I'll read them. I go on to different auction sites, sales sites. I'll read letters in detail one by one, 100 a night, just to see if it relates in any way. As I take it, it's, it's like taking instructions to IKEA furniture, tearing them up, throwing them in the air, and twice a year, you'll pull a piece and see if you can put your furniture together. And I, I feel that. I'm far enough along now that we can get the right information out. We can get the most accurate information with the proper original documentation to back it up. That hopefully if life allows me to, because I have an eight-year-old daughter that rules my world right now. Um, but if I can get it done, hopefully I can get something out there that everybody can learn together. And we can all appreciate these men because even as Washington DC said, you know, we, it'll be thought best of companies. So again, a few hundred men. And later, if it requires, it'd be thought best of battalions and regiments. So thousands of men, over 60,000 men went through this. That's just the enlisted. Over 60,000 enlisted men went through the Invalid Corps, the Veteran Reserve Corps. The problem was as soon as they went into the Invalid Corps, they were no longer a state entity. They were a government entity. So the state dropped them. So when they put out the information for state units, it just says entered Invalid Corps and the history stops. When these men were done and they went back to their state, they took on their state regiment again because they wanted benefits. It was coming from the state. So they had to say, yes, I was a state soldier. 
So very rarely do you find reference where it says it was Invalid Corps Veteran Reserve Corps, and very rarely will you find the soldier's history because it's hidden inside of the state's unit if you can find it. Going to Remembrance Day? Don't forget to plan your visit in the area utilizing Civil War trails. Let Civil War trails maximize the Civil War experience of your next road trip. Well, from what I'm seeing here, you explained it's quite the mystery and research project. You've been doing amazing stuff. You have an amazing collection. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the importance for some people who they're not collecting, like I'm a collector like you, I don't have a collection like yours, but um, can you talk to the the benefits of these sort of private collections? It's like there are museums out, but I don't believe they have the time to do the research that you're doing. So when private collectors can do this, it's a benefit to the hobby and to the study of history, no? What I have, again, I have the originals. Uh, generally, I go out and I lecture. I'll do video chats as we're doing now um, just to get the information out there because I want these men to be acknowledged. I said it's never it's never been about me and never will be about me. It's always about what these men dedicated themselves to. So there are pieces in museums. So Gettysburg has an invalid shell jacket. They rarely ever speak upon it even though they can use it in reference to the Gettysburg Address or other like instances. There is a invalid jacket hidden in a museum in Atlanta. They don't really bring it out or talk about it. The new Museum of the Army that just opened outside of DC has an invalid corps jacket, has an invalid corps canteen, has an invalid corps pin. There are two invalid corps pins, well, Veteran Reserve Corps pins, in existence that we know of today. The museum has one, I have the other. And so they, the stuff that the Museum of the Army has is all in the vaults right now. I wrote them, I asked them about it. I said, you know, I, I'm, I'm an enthusiast to these guys. Please let me know what you're doing with these pieces so I, I can direct people there for proper acknowledgement. And of course the response was, we don't have time or space for that right now. And so with my collection, 99% of it, 98% of it is online. And so if you find me on Facebook, not to plug myself here, but it is facebook.com slash Invalid Or if you search Invalid on Facebook, you don't need to be a Facebook member. It is a open group, an open page. You can just go to it without being a Facebook member. 98, 99% of what I own is on there. And each letter, each piece that I own will be transcribed. So everything that you're going to see will be spelt out. Real quick, if, you know, we have people who study the 54th Massachusetts, study the, the Irish Brigade, yeah. the 79th New York, you name it, there's all these different outfits out there that we could study. What is the importance of studying the Invalid Corps? How does knowing their story change or benefit our understanding of the Civil War as a whole? If you could just summarize it. Yeah, summarize it as easy. To understand the Invalid Corps was, the Invalid Corps were seasoned veterans that were already enlisted soldiers who had become wounded, injured, or disabled in times of war and still found purpose and still found reason for the country's cause. They took small jobs, they took big jobs, and in the end, them filling those jobs is as what one newspaper put, created the entourage of fresh soldiers for the front lines to finally turn the war. Uh, if, if I may, there was a letter put out, of course I enlarged it because nobody's sending mail this big back then, but the last line, there, there is an Invalid Corps song out there, which was written by Frank Wilder, and he was just a comedic songwriter. So all he wanted to do was get laughs. That was his intention. He wrote about the Invalid Corps, and of course, everything he wrote is wrong. So his direction was a soldier wanting to enlist in the service as a whole, but wasn't found to be a soldier because he was invalid. So he was put in the Invalid Corps. That never would have happened. You had to be a soldier before to be a soldier in the Invalid Corps. So in essence, these men served twice. They had two discharges. But as where he was making fun of them, the letter that the government put out, the last line I'll read was, Cliffborn Barracks is where headquarters are at. 
with detachments all around in this place in that but for those guards our cause would be flat the success to the invalid corps and to me that about sums it up um during the war when they tried to disband the invalid corps uh grant issued an order saying i want these men gone send them home a uh, newspaper in cleveland responded saying how dare you attack these men and their quotes men who attested themselves to leaden rain and iron hail still willing to serve and so that's the ideal outcome is you can read about your deserters and you can read about your men that ran away you can read about your men that hid they said that men would hide in the invalid corps just to collect bounty again you had to pass through three surgeons and one master surgeon to even be placed in the invalid corps there was no hiding men were routinely re-examined to make sure that they didn't get worse because they would be sent home you in the original writ if a soldier got better they would stay in the invalid corps they were never sent back later in the war they were sent back because again we needed men on the front lines and so if these men could do good service on the front line they were sent to their original unit but these were men who again were any major point in the civil war so they helped out at gettysburg by sending the entourage of fresh men into the field they went to the gettysburg address they were in the defenses of washington dc they chased early through the campaign they defended all our seaports they defended abraham lincoln they moved abraham lincoln they established the freedman's bureau for all this that they had done history forgot about them well, I thank you so much for coming on the show and shedding light on this fascinating unit. And dare I say, one of the most misunderstood units of the Civil War. That is a great definition. Absolutely. Uh, again, thank you so much. And I hope we can have you back on the show uh, to talk about more because there's so much more and we're learning so much more. There's so, and, and I'm, you know, I got a stack of stuff that I got last month that I'm still waiting to go through and, and hopefully we can learn some more. I got stuff in the mail heading to me right now that hopefully we can learn some more. And, um, you know, I'm not, I'm, I started this in 1999, again, being a stubborn kid who just wanted an answer that I couldn't find. And I, I'm not ready to give up on it yet. Thank you for listening. While you took down the Halloween decorations, put up the Thanksgiving decorations, march to the sea with Sherman, or rode around McClellan with Stewart. If you have a Civil War Eagle Scout project, podcast, roundtable, or even a Civil War relic business, don't forget to use 1863 designs for all your graphic design needs. When it comes to the Civil War, don't use somebody who just doesn't know. 1863 Designs knows the period, the uniforms, weapons, and the army regulations. They know how to create a true, authentic Civil War design. I know this because I'm a paying customer. Use the link in the show notes and let them design your next Civil War mug, keychain, t-shirt, or business card. Thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and tune in next time for our next episode.